0: Chapter 22 continues the Mishpatim, the various rules. The first rule, the first of the Mishpatim, related to slavery, because the code, the laws of the book of Exodus, are embedded in the larger narrative of the book of Exodus. The relationship between the stories of the Torah and the laws of the Torah is a fascinating topic. We won't enter into that topic right now, but it's important to take note of the fact that there does seem to be a relationship, and I believe a deep one, between the stories on one hand and the laws and the commandments on the other. So the first law related to slavery, the limitations the Torah put about on slavery, in terms of the male slave, six years and the seventh year the slave goes free. In terms of the female slave, the Ama, if a man in verse number uh, seven. When it comes to a girl who's sold by her father, Torah allows that. But fundamentally, what the Torah tries to do when it comes to the uh, woman, the girl, actually, in this case, is to convert slavery into, into marriage. The one who purchases the female slave is supposed to marry her, either to marry her himself, or to free her. Marriage is there, the term the Torah uses, yiud, or ya'ada, or permitted her to go free, hefda. He has the third option, the Torah says, to marry her to his son. That's in chapter 21, verse number uh, 9. And if the son marries her, he treats her like any other woman. He has marital obligations. The list of marital obligations, or at least a partial list of marital obligations, is actually found in the Parsha, in the section that deals with slaves, with female slaves. The financial, conjugal financial obligations of husband to wife are found in the context of someone who bought a female slave. So when it comes to the male slave, the Torah limited in terms of time, limited in terms of invading the person's personal life. If he had wife and children before, they go free with him. Discourages the slave from staying beyond six years. When it comes to the female slave, the Torah has a different move, which is to try to convert slavery into a kind of marriage relationship. That's the first of the Team. It doesn't surprise us. Chapter 22 as many other laws. So let's briefly discuss one of the laws that appears in chapter 22, which is the very beginning of chapter 22. If the, if the thief, ganav is a thief, is found in a machteret, typically translated as a tunnel. So this thief is trying to tunnel into your house. If the thief was found in the tunnel, and was smitten, was hit, and died, lo it's as if he has no blood, in other words, an act of murder has not been committed. The person who kills the thief tunneling into his house uh, is not liable for killing this person. Now the context of Machteret is the previous verse at the end of chapter 21, which talks about the thief. Ki shor if a Person stole a lamb or an, an ox or a lamb and slaughtered it or sold it or And Then there's a penalty five times for the ox. Shall he pay tzon and fourfold for the se uh, for the lamb? So there's a penalty for stealing. You don't simply return the object. Elsewhere, the Torah speaks about geza, about stealing something zelah which is typically understood as you take it in more of an open way. It's not done in a sneaky or surreptitious way. And then, you must return the thing that you stole. In the case of stealing Ganav, who took it surreptitiously, secretly, and then sold the stolen ox or lamb, or slaughtered it, there's a penalty. You don't simply return the stolen object. You have a, a, what's called a penalty, or a knas, that's the first that precedes the Machteret. And after the Machteret, Machterets chapter 22, verse 1, if the thief is found in, in the Machteret and is slain, there's no blood, no liability. In Bzarcha Hashem alav, but if the sun has risen upon him, damim then he has blood. That is to say, you, the one who kills him is liable. Shalem ye He shall, however, restore the object, and if if the thief can't afford to pay, doesn't have the money to pay back, he can be sold as a slave in order to pay back that which he stole. So the Torah distinguishes in the first two verses between a machteret, on one hand, one who tunnels into your house, and if you slay him, you're not liable. If the sun has risen then you are liable. You can't kill him. What does it mean if the sun has risen? So the simplest uh, understanding of it, which is found in some of the commentaries, if the sun has risen means he's outside the tunnel. It's dark inside the tunnel. If the sun has risen, he's once he's left the tunnel, you're not allowed to kill him. Then it's up to the courts, the system of justice to deal with him. You take him to court, he has to pay, and if he doesn't, have the money, the court will sentence him to becoming a slave in order to pay, back, to pay back the debt. Now the simple reading of the Torah, in my view, is that what the Torah is saying is if someone tunnels into my house, my house is my domain, you enter into my house, an unwelcome and even dangerous intruder, I have, I have the right to kill you. Or perhaps we would say, I may not have the right to kill you, but if I did kill you, ain't lo I'm not liable. Because you entered into my domain. You shouldn't have entered. If you entered, your blood's on your own hands. I'm not held responsible. Whether I'm permitted to kill you or not, in the plain reading of the text, I don't know. But if I did kill you, the huqah, he was killed, he was hit, and he died, ain't What's interesting is that the classical rabbinic understanding of these verses is not so. The rabbis have, virtu- have essentially, implicitly, if not explicitly, rejected that possibility. The idea that I could simply slay the intruder who's entered my domain is not a position that the core rabbinical tradition wants to accept. And therefore, they understand these verses differently. They understand it in the following way. If the person tunnels into my house, so the person is tunneling into my house, Let's say it's at nighttime. It's at a time where the thief understands that there are probably people in the house. If there are probably people in the house, there's a chance that the people in the house will not sit, stand idly by and simply let this person steal possessions, take possessions from the house. Normal people will, will stand up to try to prevent someone from stealing. And if the person, the thief's reasons, if the person is going to try to stop me, might even want, perhaps injure me, might even kill me. So when the thief enters the house, the thief enters into the house with an understanding, with a thought, well, if he tries to kill me, I'm going to kill him first. Now, because the thief has the thought that I might kill him first, this allows the members of the house to kill the thief who was rendered someone who is threatening what they call a rodeif, a, a pursuer. So the rationale for the ability to kill the thief is something like someone comes to kill you, you kill him first. The Torah is not pacifistic in that sense. However, Imzarcha Hashem could could mean in this context, but if it's the daytime. The daytime, people go to work. There's nobody home. So if it's in the daytime, the thief is not entering with the thought of harming anybody. The thief believes he's entering an empty house. In that case, he has no intention of killing you, and therefore you're not allowed to kill him. So the issue for the rabbinic understanding is, what is the intention of the thief? If we know pretty certainly he's not going to harm you, he's just going to steal, you're not allowed to kill him. If on the other hand, he, could, he might kill you, then you are allowed to kill him. So essentially, the rabbinic understanding is to, in a sense, reduce this to what we call the question of the road, dave. Now, it's an interesting uh, variation on the theme, because in this particular case, if it's my house and someone enters my house, I don't have to confront the intruder. I can stand by, go up in my room, lock the door, let him steal whatever he takes, and uh, then I'll take him to court afterwards. So, no, I'm permitted to, uh, I don't have to do that, I don't have to stand by and let him uh, steal my possessions. But fundamentally, it's interesting, at the end of the day, it comes under the larger category of of the pursuer. Apparently, the rabbinic tradition did not want to accept this idea that my house is my castle, and any intruder uh, I have right, I have certainly the, the ability of at least I'm not going to be punished if I, if I kill that person. That's a position that apparently the rabbinic tradition rejected when it reduced the machteret passage to a subcategory of the pursuer of the Rodev.